It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Welcome to the Friday edition of Daily Thunder. We're going through a five-part series just this week, and we're just sort of in, out, done. Uh, and today's the final uh, piece of that. Uh, it's part five of the Secrets of Intimacy, uh, which has been a beautiful uh, meditation this week, I think, for all of us. Uh, this one is a great way to finish. You know, when you're going through the five uh, disciplines of the Christian faith, uh, this one would typically be called prayer. And so we're going to look at it from a different angle, and that's what I've been trying to do with each of these disciplines just to sort of cultivate a different lens, a, a different angle on something that maybe we are almost too familiar with that we sort of glaze over. It's like, oh, I know prayer. But uh, when you think of prayer as an art of intimacy or as an action that cultivates intimacy, I think that's a, a new lens for us just right there because for many of us, prayer is a duty or a responsibility, and that's where it's falls into neglect as it becomes weighty. Coming in, guys. Uh, and when, when it becomes weighty, uh, hey, Hudson, could you help uh, just get another row uh, back there for them? And uh, Jason, could you help Hudson do that real quick? <coughs> so when we look at prayer as a duty or a responsibility, it has a tendency to zap the relational dimension out of it. And so it's, it's critical that we look at it with a fresh perspective. So I'm calling this the triumph of togetherness. And really the idea I want to build on is something that we could call identification. And identification and togetherness, I'm going to link those uh, as we go throughout this. But I would like us to realize that uh, that togetherness with Christ, which is gained in and through our faith in Christ, where we become one with him, we exit Adam and we enter into Christ, actually brings about an intimacy with Christ. Oneness, but that's also a principle of how we gain intimacy with a spouse. And so there's a beautiful picture here, I think you'll understand, uh, of intimacy as we unfold this. My sister... uh, has a, had a statement that she said to me, and I know many of you have heard me talk about my sister. Her name's uh, Christina. I call her Chrissy. And uh, she always was convicting me growing up. She would, you know, I would roll up my sleeves to try and show off muscles as I would walk around the house, and she would just come up and knock down my sleeves. And she was always praying for me, you know, that I would be awakened and stirred by God. And it used to bother me. And... But I remember when I came to Christ, she was the first one I wanted to talk to. She was the one that I knew would understand what was going on inside of me. So as much as she had to receive the, uh, the difficulties from me uh, growing up because of her stand for Christ, she also received my loyalties uh, as we progressed and I gave my life to Christ. And I have a great high admiration for my sister. But my sister has a lot of different quotes in my life and... I don't know if you have someone like that from when you're growing up. You just always reflect back on this one statement they made, this one little story they told you. That's my sister. She she has so many different things. This is one of them. She goes, Eric, imagine that you're at the cross 
And Jesus is hanging on the cross, bloodied. Uh, he's being mocked. He's being ridiculed. Crown upon his head, his beard torn out, you know, his face smeared with blood, his body just covered in blood. And he's, he has two thieves on either side, a thief on either side of him. And he looks like a criminal. And everyone's hurling insults, mockery, jeers. That in that moment, you walk up to the foot of the cross and you stick your finger up and point at that bloody pulp and say, I'm with him. And she said, just imagine. Would you be willing to do that? And that, I mean, I, I still remember it. I still remember the question. And I guess that's a question for all of us because that's an issue of the triumph of togetherness. It's the identification. It's the ultimate picture of it, too, because in the privacy of our own home, bedroom, when we pray and we say, Jesus, I believe. I am with you in this. But then we get into the public sector and we sort of disassociate ourselves with Jesus. Well, that's not going to breed intimacy. When you find yourself in the public sector and you disassociate and you dismiss Jesus, when your Jesus should be stood for, when his truth should be represented, and you find yourself subtly alienating yourself from that, that doesn't breed intimacy. However, just think about the opposite. To stand with Jesus in that moment when he is being publicly ridiculed, to stand with him and to say, I am with him, is the ultimate thing that is going to cultivate that togetherness. That's it's called the fellowship of suffering. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, this is Paul, and this is in his great list of desires, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Now, many of us have read this and have paused saying, we don't know if we want to repeat it ourselves. Do we really? I mean, we want to know him in the power of his resurrection. Yay! And the fellowship of his, of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Uh, pause, awkward moments. I'm not exactly sure if I should say that I want that too. Do I really want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings? Do you know what his sufferings are? Have you seen them? Have you witnessed what happened at the cross? Do you remember the betrayal of Judas? Do you remember that all his disciples fled? Do you remember that he was, that Barabbas, the, the criminal, the murderer, was chosen over him? And the Jews, the very people that he came for, cried out, crucify him. And then they took a Roman uh, lash, a Roman uh, cat of nine tails, and, and scraped away his body flesh. They just raked his body clean of flesh, and he's just a bloody pulp. And then they put a, a, a Roman cross on his shoulders, and tell him to march. And if he falls down, they whip him. They mock him, put a crown of thorns upon his head, rip out his beard, spit upon his face. And then they hang him naked before a mocking people until he dies. Uh, you want to share in that? What, what, Paul, what are you thinking? No, 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 no. He died for us. We don't need to have anything to do with it. Thank you, Jesus, for doing it. I don't need to have anything to do with that. And yet there's something about the gospel that is willing to forsake a first life and a first identity and a first reputation and a first association. We want to be associated with the cool. We want to be associated with the hip. We want to be associated with the in vogue. And we're willing to put that off and be associated with him. And if he is going to be beaten, we'll be beaten. If he's going to be mocked, we'll be mocked. If he's going to be shamed, we'll be shamed. If he's going to hang naked, we'll hang naked. We're with him. Where he goes, we go. 
how he's treated will be treated. What I just described to you is actually what a marriage ceremony is. That's exactly what you're saying in a marriage ceremony. It's like whatever happens to this person, I'm with them. If it's difficulty, I'll take on the difficulty too. If it's success, I'll share in the success. If it's misery, I'll share in the misery till death parts us. How come we sort of don't understand that marriage is merely a hint, a shadow of our marriage covenant with Jesus? We're being brought in and it's like the vows are exactly that. Oh, he's gonna suffer? I'll suffer with him. He has to carry a cross? I'll carry a cross. He has to go onto that hill and stand before, or hang naked before a mocking crowd and be jeered at, laughed at, scorned. I'll be with him. That's all I want is to be where he is. And ironically, what I'm describing for you is what makes marriage beautiful is that your spouse knows that you'll go through everything with them, that there is no pondering, no bubble thought that says, well, that's, that's the extent of my loyalties. There's no extent to loyalties in marriage. It's, it's all in. And when it comes to Jesus Christ, it's all in. I don't care where he goes. I don't care what it leads to. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, our bridegroom who gave his life to rescue us. And the least we could do is say, I do. I will and I do. Classic marriage statement. Will you, Eric Ludy, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded bride to love and to cherish from this day forward till death parts you? I don't know how I just quoted all that. <clears throat> I do. Will you, O oh Christian, take this Jesus to be your lawfully wedded husband? That no matter in sickness and in health, in danger and difficulty, whether in joys or successes, that you will walk at his side till death parts you. And even when death, well, you're still united forever and always. I do. You see, this is what communion actually is. When we take of that bread and that juice, what we are actually saying is, I do. I receive his body. He receives mine. Here you go, Lord. Here's my body and blood. I receive yours in exchange. You know, covenant is an exchange. It's an exchange of life. It's an exchange of commitment. It's an exchange of trust. Where you go, I go. The fellowship of his sufferings. So let's look at the sufferings of the body of Christ. This is just first century. So these are those that bonded together with Jesus. Where he went, they went. And this is such a, an extreme list that I think most of us start to faint. It's like, whoa, this is how the church started. These are the first century Christians. His disciples become apostles that are literally going to say, I'm with you, Jesus. Wherever you go, I will go. Stephen was stoned. Philip was crucified. Matthew was slain with a sword. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned and clubbed. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Mark was dragged to pieces. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and then crucified. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Luke was hung. Peter was crucified. And John was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil and removed unscathed and then exiled to Patmos. So when Paul is speaking, saying that he desires to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings and to be conformed unto his death, he does know what he's talking about. I would say Paul was one of the lead instruments in the body of Christ to train the body of Christ in what we understand as the doctrine of suffering. But another way of saying it is the doctrine of identification. 
Where Christ goes, I go. Whatever Christ goes through, I'm willing to go through. And that's how we bond. That's what unites us. That's how we know him. That's how we know him better. I cannot think of a better way to know someone than to walk in their shoes than to share in their difficulties. If you've ever gone through a situation where you've gone into another country, a third world situation, and you see a family living on a dump, and you just spend an hour there with them, you may not be sharing in their sufferings to an extreme degree, like actually living there for a month, but you get a hint, and you get a lot better, more clear idea of what it's like to be in their life than it is right now as I talk about it. Because you went where they went. You were with them in their difficulty, and as a result, you come back, you're like, we need to do something, guys. You're moved, you're stirred, and when you taste of Christ's sufferings, you say, you went through that for me. It bonds you. It's an amazing thing. So the term walking a mile in someone's shoes is a famous phrase. It's become a secular phrase. I, I think Elvis even has a song that uh, has this as a line. Uh, and yet it comes from Matthew 5. It's, it's literally saying if someone asks you to walk a mile uh, and to carry their pack. You know, and so it's actually a biblical concept that we share in someone. We're willing to identify with someone else's burden and carry it for them. And yet the concept is that of identification. And one of the things I used to teach, we used to travel the world and speak on relationships with the opposite sex, is we would, I would call it tenderness, not identification, not togetherness, I called it tenderness. And I said tenderness is essential in a marriage relationship. But here's how it works. You have a man and you have a woman and they are very different than each other. And so when you get married, a lot of times a man thinks that a woman should think like he does. And a woman thinks that a man should think like he does, or she does. Did I say that uh, backwards? And so we, we presume that, you know, as men, I've only been a man, so I can only really speak from that side of things, but that shouldn't a woman think and behave and act like a man? Of course, I'm very glad that they don't, but it's weird when you get married to one, you're just sort of thinking, what's, what's going on inside of your head? Well, that's a weird thought. Why, why would you think that? It, it, it's because they are wired by God to approach things differently. And ironically, it's complementary to a man. But he doesn't see that at first. He's just sort of trying to correct it. He wants to fix it so that they can, you know, the woman can think like he does. Because women are sort of odd. And the way that they approach things, you ever heard the famous statement about uh, the the, the wife that comes home and says, honey, I saved $200 today. And the, and the husband is immediately thinking, ching, ching, we have $200 more in the bank account. What she meant is she spent 2000 and got a great deal uh, and he got $200 off, so it actually only cost $1,800. <laughs> and that's like the classic difference between a man and a woman. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, just the perspectives, and it really is funny, you know, uh, Who's the guy that did the far side? Uh, what was his name? Uh, I can't remember. He's a car cartoonist guy that did the far side comics. And one of the things he used to always say is he believes that the cow is the most intrinsically hilarious uh, creature. And so he'd always put cows. You see Chick-fil-A doing the same thing. And, uh, and they are funny. I mean, cows are really a funny creature, right? And so, but if you were to just really break it down, I have to admit cows rank up there, but the differences between men and women is actually one of the most hilarious things on earth. You can just sort of see God chuckling as he's inventing this thing, this compliment. 
because we don't see it obviously, but that's why we need tenderness. So the secret for a man is to climb outside of his skin and get inside of the woman's skin and look at life through her eyes. It's like, well, this is a strange vantage point. And yet as he begins to live with understanding, saying, oh, okay, I understand what you're feeling here. I understand you feel vulnerable right now. Oh, I, I get it. Why? Because he's walking a mile in her shoes. And when you walk a mile in someone else's shoes, you get it. And what does that do? That bonds you closer. And when a woman feels understood by her husband, she feels closer to her husband. I mean, it's a triumph of togetherness. That's how it works. And the same is true in reverse. When a wife is willing to get inside of her husband's shoes and recognize what it's like to be him, what it's like to be dealing with the trials that he's going through, and then she identifies with it and says, I get it. I know what you're going through. I tell you what, it causes a bond uh, to be created. Well, the same is true in our bond with Jesus Christ. When we are willing to share in his sufferings, to understand what it means to suffer for his name, when we share in his, the mockery that was thrown at him, it's incredible, but it bonds us with our king. This is a really neat story, uh, excerpted out of Streams in the Desert. During the Civil War, a man had, only one, had an only son who enlisted in the armies of the Union. The father was a banker, and although he consented to his son's going, it seemed as if it would break his heart to let him go. He became deeply interested in the soldier boys, and whenever he saw a uniform, his heart went out as he thought of his dear boy. He spent his time, neglected his business, gave his money to caring for the soldiers who came home invalid. His friends remonstrated with him, that means argued with him, saying he had no right to neglect his business and to spend so much thought upon the soldiers, so he fully decided to give it all up. After he had come to this decision, there stepped into his bank one day a private soldier in a faded, worn uniform who showed in his face and hands the marks of the hospital. The poor fellow was fumbling in his pocket to get something or other, when the banker saw him and perceiving his purpose, said to him, my dear fellow, I cannot do anything for you today. I am extremely busy. You'll have to go to your headquarters. The officers there will look after you. Still the poor convalescent stood, not seeming to fully understand what was said to him. Still he fumbled in his pockets and by and by drew out a scrap of dirty paper on which there were a few lines written with a pencil and laid this soiled sheet before the banker. On it he found these words. Dear father, this is one of my comrades who was wounded in the last fight and has been in the hospital. Please receive him as myself, Charlie. In a moment, all the resolutions of indifference which this man made flew away. He took the boy to his palatial home, put him in Charlie's room, gave him Charlie's seat at the table, kept him until food and rest and love had brought him back to health and then sent him back again to imperil his life for the flag. It's just sort of a intriguing story, isn't it? Because obviously it showcases the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus does. Father, receive him or her as if they were me. And so we get treated as Christ would be treated by the Father. I mean, that's the miracle of identification. So because we have identified with Christ, and we have identified with his crucifixion, we have identified with his burial, we have identified with his resurrection, we have identified with his seated position, we are in Christ. We are adopted as children. And as a result, we share in Charlie's room in the palatial kingdom of heaven. We're given Charlie's seat at the table and we are healed in Christ. We are made whole in Christ. It's just a, it's a beautiful picture. So to identify, the concept that we're dealing with is identification. 
What I just said are what are called historically the identification doctrines. That's actually even what they are called. But to identify means to share in their situation, to carry their plight, to bear their reputation, to intimately understand their needs, and to own their destination. Where you go, I will go. And if you remember uh, Ruth uh, saying to Naomi, your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. It's, it's, a, it's a statement of identification. It's an incredible picture of a Gentile reaching out to someone that's headed to the promised land. And so to identify, and you, you, you see in that word identify, identity. Our identity is crucial to how we live our life. Who are you? And as a Christian, we need to know who we are. And the key to that is to know who we are in Christ because who we are outside of Christ, we, we really struggle with that. Who are you? And you're like, I don't know, who am I? What, what, what makes me? We look at our talents, we look at our skills, we look at our abilities, look at how much money we have in the bank, we look at our reputation, we look at our, uh, our, our home, our cars that we drive, the clothes we wear. We're looking to try and make ourselves something, but it's feeble. When we enter into Jesus by faith, our identity moves from being in ourselves and in Adam, trying to have some make a name for ourselves, to finding our name in Christ, finding our identity, our reputation in him. We share in him. So to share in their situation, to carry their plight, to bear their reputation, to intimately understand their needs, to own their destination. This is what Jesus did with us. He shared in our situation, he carried our plight, he bore our reputation, he intimately understood our needs, and he owned our destination. He went where we were supposed to go. Now what's interesting is then we are called by faith to identify with him and to share in his situation, which is an amazing thing. So therefore, we share in his sufferings, yes, but we also share in his situation. He's, he's the king of all kings. He has authority over all to, to carry his plight. Well, God has a burden in this world. He has agonies. And are we willing to, sh to carry those with him, to bear his reputation? Well, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing thing that even though he's the king of kings and the lord of lords, his reputation is oftentimes run through the mud. And are we willing to bear that with him? To intimately understand his needs. How about this, to own his destination? His destination is the right hand of the Father. Where he goes, we go. So, as you've heard me say, there's twos in Scripture, a first and a second. And Jesus says, unless a man be born again, unless we leave our first condition and identify with a new condition and, and are born again, well, we share in the wrong destination. So every single one of us, when we are first born, are identifying with Adam. We share in his rebellion, we carry his disposition, we bear his infamy, we intimately understand his impotence or lack of strength and power, and we own his destination. What's his destination? Well, eternal separation from God in hell, ultimately the lake of fire. Okay, so that is not a good situation for us, which is why Jesus came to this earth, to change, ironically, our identity. How about this, to identify with Christ means to share in his victory, to carry his glory, to bear his name, to intimately understand his power, and to own his destination. The bully and the spindly kid. So uh, 
when, when an Ellerslie semester starts out, I'll oftentimes say, well, I always have had it, a man talk up on the stage in the lake house. And I'll, I'll usually bring up the bully and the spindly kid because this is from my past when I was walking home from, from elementary school. Uh, this one bully in our school would always uh, to pick on little uh, spindly kids that were a lot smaller than him and say, in the park after school. And he was going to beat them up. And you, know, you could say, well, why would the kid even go to the park? Well, because the, the bully had all of his cronies that would drag the kid there. And so the kid wasn't too excited about it, uh, but he didn't have much of a choice. And as long as it's not on school grounds, he wouldn't get expelled. So there was a big park across the street. And I would always, my mom told me to always just walk home. Uh, you know, because we just had to walk straight down the sidewalk, climb over the back of a fence into our backyard, and I'm home. I'm not supposed to cross the street into the park. But I was so intrigued. And all the, you know, kids in the school were like, fight, 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 fight. And I was just fascinated. And so I crossed the street, and I went down where I wasn't supposed to, and I saw something that so uh, shocked me, and that was a big bully beating up a little kid. And what's interesting is before the fight started, I knew instinctively that something was wrong. And I knew that someone should do something. Someone should stand up for the little kid. This is I an unjust thing. That like, bullies double his size. This isn't right. And yet Eric did nothing. And if you, if you saw me, I'm about the size of the spindly kid back then. And you could say, well, I, okay, I guess I could understand why you didn't do something. However, in Christianity, we must do something. And so there's a mandate that sort of hangs out there. And Jesus says, you see that spindly kid? I want you to treat him as if it's me. And what you do for that little spindly kid is what you do for me. And that's the gospel. And so as a result, if we're going to identify with Jesus in this world, we identify with the spindly kid in this situation. But what would that mean for Eric if I did? Uh, it's not good, guys. I mean, if you saw what happened to this little spindly kid, I mean, he was beat up and he was beat up bad. Well, I don't want to get involved in that. And yet, could you imagine, this is what I always say to the, the men, what would it be like if little Eric Ludy steps out between the little spindly kid and the, and the bully? And all, everyone's like, fight, fight, fight. And then suddenly Eric stands up. His knees may be knocking, his body quaking. And I say, hey, leave him alone, Rufus. It's just like, I don't know what his name was, but uh, that doesn't that sound like a bully's name, Rufus? Of course, one of you would say, I have an uncle, Rufus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, the bully's going to say, get out of the way, Ludi, or you're next. And, of course, you know, then little Ludi's supposed to say something like, if you want to get to him, you're going to have to get through me. You know, and even though my voice is quavering, that's just what you do. But what am I doing? I'm identifying with the spindly kid. And when I do, you know that the gospel is being preached to three different groups of people? Even though the big bully might say, okay, <laughs> and knock me flat out. I mean, I could be out cold with one punch, right? And you could say, well, that was a waste. It wasn't. Because I can actually speak something. I can showcase Jesus in and through my stand for the spindly kid. My identification with that spindly kid has an incredible impact on the bully who's laying in bed that night rolling around and he can't get it out of his mind. He's convicted for the first time of how he is treating these weaker people. Because I'm saying, uh, I was going to call him Biff. Uh, what did I call him? Rufus? Rufus, you're double his side, le size. Leave him alone. This is unfair. You see, for the first time, someone is speaking truth to Rufus. And now he's convicted as he's rolling around in bed at night. 
And he's looking for solace. He's looking for some kind of answer. How about the audience around that knew this was wrong? And now one person is willing to identify with the little guy, and suddenly they're convicted that they didn't. You see, they're witnessing the work of Jesus. And then how about the little spindly kid? What is he seeing? Well, who's his best friend for the rest of his life? That little Ludi character that stood up and did something for him. No one else would, but he did. You see, what this is, is it's introducing the spindly kid to the gospel. It's introducing Rufus to the gospel. It's introducing the onlooking crowd to the gospel. This is our life, guys. There's spindly kids all over the place. There's bullies all around us. And when we stand up for the weak, we are identifying with Christ. It's an interesting phenomenon. If any of you have ever gone through the, the concept of seeing someone that's rather uh, unkempt, smelly, hanging there on the side of the road somewhere with a sign, it's a hard thing in the American culture because some, sometimes we're like, I think this is a racket. I think they stand there and then they, have you ever seen them rotate where someone's like, you know, they give them a high five and the next guy comes in and it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> something's odd. But these people are in need. It's sort of like dealing with the coronavirus right now. You could say it's ridiculous that people fear this, right? But they really do. So as a result, we need to treat them as if they're someone who's in need. They're not, we don't just treat them as stupid people. We treat them as people that are actually fearful. And so as a result, how can we help them? How can we serve them? They need truth, just like that spindly kid needs someone to stand for them. But if you've ever taken one of these homeless people into, let's say, a uh, Burger King, okay, so you're going to treat them to a meal, because, you know, we've been trained well. We're not just going to give them money. We're going to say, hey, can I get you a meal? And so the next thing you know, they're in Burger King with us, right? And so you're in Burger King with this rather smelly character who doesn't look very good. And it's interesting, because if you've ever gone through this, you know what I mean by this where everyone around you is sort of looking at your table because you're giving off an odor. Now, you may not be giving off an odor, but your table is giving off an odor because the person with you at the table has an odor, and you're smelling it too, and you're sort of near passing out, but you're identifying with it, so as a result, you share in the odor. And this person doesn't, they talk extremely loud, and they are louder than they should be, and guess what? You're sharing in that, so your table is loud. So as far as you're concerned, you're being loud. And the way that they're eating and they're stuffing the food in their mouth is very inappropriate. And guess what? So as a result, you're inappropriate. You're identifying with their behavior, with their smell. And this is what Christ did for us. This is what we are called to do for him. Isn't that an amazing thought? That One of the key ways that we identify with Christ isn't just standing up and bearing the infamy that might be associated with his name and saying, I'm with Jesus, but to actually care for the ones that he cares for and to share in their plight, to share in their smell, to share in their bad manners. Isn't that an interesting thought? Gaining the, that affectionate connection. There is something that takes place with Christ and also with like our spouse or with anyone, like uh, I, how I would have gained access into the spindly kid's heart if I had stood. It's an affectionate connection that is gained through identification. You gain this connection, this unity, this oneness in and through identification. So as you guys know, I ask the question a lot at Ellerslie, what is your position? And the, the question is supposed to trigger something. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ?
And so as a result, I'm going to tell myself all day long that I'm in Christ. I remind myself of my position. But what does that mean to you? You see, when you say that you're in Christ, it, it could just be a statement. And you're like, I don't really know what that means, but I know that that's the right answer that Eric's looking for. But what does it mean to you? It means where he goes, I go. What he does, I will do. The shame that he may bear, I'll bear it. The reputation he may have in this world, I'll carry it. In other words, what does it mean to you to be in Christ? Yes, it could mean salvation, because it does. It could mean atonement from sin, which it, it does. It could mean that you are clothed in righteousness, and it does mean that, praise God. It could mean a seated position in the heavenly realms that nothing of this earth can possibly separate you from that love of God in Christ Jesus. And it does, but it also means where he goes, you go. How he is viewed in this world, you're happy to be viewed that way. To bear the name Christian in the early days of Christianity was a stigma. It was a, it was a slam. If you were called a Christian, that was not a positive statement. And yet, could you imagine saying, I'm a Christian. Proud of it. I'm a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Jesus Christ is his name. I love him. You crucified him. You mocked him. You ripped out his beard and spat in his face. I love him. You see, it's easy to say it in here, but actually this fellowship of suffering is proven out there. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. So a high priest is an identifier. That's actually what the high priest is. A high priest is on behalf of his people offering something. He understands his people because he's like his people. He's human like the rest of the people. So as a result, he comes before God on behalf of the ones that he represents. He identifies with them. He knows their weakness. And he says, God, forgive us as a people. We are a weak people. So here's an offering. Jesus is going to become like us. But he's going to become the high priest of high priests. He's going to be after a higher order than the order of Levi, of human lineage. He's going to be of the order of Melchizedek. And he is going to come in on behalf. He's going to identify with us in our humanity. He is tempted in every way as we are. And he's going to say, Father, here's an offering of my own blood to atone for their sins. We need a high priest. We need someone who is identified with us. And what he does in so doing is he enables us to identify in him. And as a result, we have the triumph of togetherness. We have the ultimate picture of intimacy that is gained. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's the conclusion. As a result of that, let us therefore... Come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace and find grace to help in time of need. <clears throat> Father, we desire more of you today. And many of us desire to have the triumph of resurrection without the challenges of the cross. But Lord, today I pray that we would embrace the cross in order to discover that which we are craving. 
that resurrection life is only found on the far side of the cross. That when we pick up our cross and follow you, we find life and life abundant. When we deny ourselves and we give up this life, we find it. We find life in you. Lord, I pray that we would freshly resolve to follow you, to go where you go, to do what you do, to love as you love, to speak as you speak, to serve as you serve, to humble ourselves as you humbled yourself, to hang naked on a cross if necessary, Lord. As you lead, we follow. Lord, teach us this art of intimacy, this secret of fellowship, that oneness is found in and through that togetherness, that loyalty, that standing with the spindly kid, that taking the smelly homeless man to dinner and sharing a table with him and therefore identifying in his smell and in his loud voice and in his bad manners. Lord Jesus, may we be willing to go low and find that intimate fellowship with you in the process. Lord Jesus, train us in your ways. Your ways are perfect. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.